This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, I'm Hanif Baharudin and you're tuned into the show that explores the narratives of historical landmarks and places in the Klang Valley. This month, we're going to be talking about Pulau Kerry or Kerry Island. The borders are now open again and I'm sure a lot of you must be looking forward to going back to your hometowns or kampongs or to travel outside of Klang Valley. But for those of you who are from here and are not that ready yet to travel across borders, perhaps you can consider visiting Pulau Kerry. It's located in Klang and conventionally, it is not really your typical destination or a place to visit. But if you want to explore a place that's different, maybe Kerry Island is worth considering. Our resident heritage conservation expert, Elizabeth Cardosa, joins me on the show to share the story of the island. Kerry Island, Pulau Kerry, um, is in a sense, you know, I mean, we talk, we, we talk generally about things that happen within the Klang Valley, right? So it's just on the edge of the Klang Valley, if you know what I mean. Um, because you, you would access it through the Klang Banting Road, you know, highway, one of that. And the other um, highway that cuts across it now, um, yeah, completely drives me bananas that it does that, but, you know, that flies across the island is the, um, not the NKVE, the SKVE that cuts across the island. So, generally speaking, I would say that you're still within the parameters of, of you know, your show. I love KL. Uh, and the greater KL. Um, but Kerry Island is, um, yeah, a little, um, one of the, I think, seven or eight um, islands just off of um, Klang um, that are called the, sort of collectively, the Klang Islands. And it's um, one of three, I think, that there, uh, I think the, there are others which are not populated, inhabited in a sense. Um, but um, three, three of them are, and Kerry Island is one. Um, I think Kerry Island is, I don't know whether it's the biggest of, of the three inhabited islands, but it is really, you know, very large. It's quite a large island. And it's separated from the mainland by uh, the river, by a river, the Langat River. And I think in the district, it's, it's Ulu Langat, maybe, the district that it's in. So traditionally, you would have, until the 1980s, um, 70s or 80s, you would have had to get to Kerry Island by boat from Port Klang. Uh, you would have had to get to to Kerry Island. There was no road connecting the the island to the mainland um, across the river, and really, it was only much much later. You know, I think it was in the sort of um, 80s, maybe 70s, but I think 80s when uh, this bridge connected that. So then all of a sudden, the island, in a sense, because it's not a very wide river, the island kind of became more accessible. But the remoteness of the island when you used to have to go to it by ferry, like you have to go to Pulakatam, which is the other one of the other islands, off of, um, which is one of the other Klang Islands, yeah? Uh, you go by ferry, you know, so you cross over by boat. Um, it's not linked to the mainland. And um, in a sense, the journey of getting there and the anticipation of getting there is, is, is interesting. It's like when you used to have to go by ferry um, from Butterworth to Georgetown to Penang um, and not cross the bridge. You know, there, there is 
this break in your journey, and then you have this anticipation of getting to a place. Um, so for me, that's always been, I don't know whether it's a romantic idea or whatever, but you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of nice to think about um, when you're visiting a place, because you are talking about visiting, right? Um, this, this, this journey that we go through. Um, but yeah, it is mainly plantation. And I think most people know it from, from two types of things. One is the plantations, the, the now huge, you know, um, swaths of the, the island uh, is uh, palm oil, oil palm, and uh, used to be rubber. And the other uh, thing that people know it for, I think mostly will be um, the Mahmeri communities that live there and their activities. And they are a small, the Mahmeri are a, a Orang Asli group. They're relatively small Orang Asli group. Um, and I think they're mostly found in a few villages on, on the island. But I just kind of wanted to talk about, like you, you were saying what's the history of the place, right? So there was this man, Mr. Carey. And there is a Jalan Carey, for example, in uh, PJ Old Town. I think it's the same Carey. Um, and um, he, John Valentine Edward Carey, some name of that, I, I can't absolutely remember. But I know there's a V and an E in his name. And um, he wanted to establish a rubber estate and um, he managed to get hold of this land um, on the island to be um, given to him um, from the state, from the Sultan, to develop into a state. The thing is that, that, I mean, in some ways, you know, I can't understand what his thinking was behind it, but the island at high tide is below sea level. So it actually has to be protected on the edges by a bunt, you know, like a bun, like, you know, you, you, you build up a bun uh, so that the water doesn't breach, you know, the edges of the island, obviously. Um, the other aspect of the island is the fact that there is no um, source of uh, fresh water. So you have a settlement. Um, I'm not talking about the Orangas, I'm talking about the plantation settlement first. But the plantation settlement, you have people, your you know, your, the labour that works the plantation, your managers, your whoever it is that, that does things on it. And they <clears throat> live on the island, um, but there is no natural um, source of water, um, fresh water supply, until the 1980s, when um, with the bridge came piped water. So all the piped water comes from across the mainland site. Lah. Now, but prior to that, the question was, you know, how do you live and how do you, you know, what what is your source of water? And you think about it. So this is, we're talking about the early 1900s, okay? Early 1900s, you know, the teens, 1913 to the 1920s. And um, so the houses that were being built there to accommodate, the staff of the plantation, there, there was this really very interesting and 
for that time, I think rather, you know, clever, very clever, but also very currently we think of it as, as, as forward looking. In order for them to gather a fresh water, they gathered rainwater and they gathered rainwater. So you talk about rainwater harvesting now, today, you know, oh, we must do that, right? Because that's green technology. They were doing that on Kerry Island uh, long, long, long ago. And they would gather the rainwater that, you know, fell off the roof into, you know, large, so that the gutters, and then the water would be directed down uh, the pipes, the, the rainwater down pipes, into large tanks. Now, the first house and the one that's most famous in Kerry Island uh, on the plantation, um, which is now a Saimdabi plantation, because the plantations changed hands after Mr. Kerry, you know, sold over and things like that. Um, he, this plantation house, um, the first one that's called Hatter's Castle. So why Hatter? I'm not quite sure why Hatter. Um, castle, you know, so you imagine it's quite large, lah, right? And on this flat piece of land, you know, covered, you know, by uh, rubber trees at that time, and then now um, oil palm, you have this large brick two-story house with this very dominant uh, roof structure. Um, and the water that was harvested, the rainwater that was harvested was then gathered and filled up a tank, a, a large tank that was at the back of the house. And then you, so the tank would be able to supply you with water um, throughout uh, for your cooking, for your cleaning, for your bath, for your whatever, right? Um, and then it would then be piped back, uh, pumped back into the house, you know, into the systems for the house. So you gathered your rainwater, you stored it, and then you could use it. And subsequent to that, other buildings that were built also had these tanks. But the interesting thing was these tanks were not something that you could see externally. They, in a sense, became the the they were below the houses. So they were kind of like basements. So you make your piling, you build your foundations of your house, you create a tank there, and the rainwater that you harvest goes into that tank for storage, and then it's pumped up for use of the house. So whether it's right, good, um, you know, some people, you know, who, who are like the water diviners and the, the, the people who are very sensitive to water may not like it as much um, because it is, um, you know, you, you, in a sense, your house or your, your structure is floating lah, or rather is, uh, you know, like, like above this water tank. And, but they use that as a way to make sure that when it was dry, when there was no other means of, um, you know, during the dry season, um, when it wasn't raining, you had a supply of water. And of course, the bigger houses, the houses for the manager, for the boss, was all always had a larger, because the house itself had a larger footprint, the amount of water it could store was more, right? And for the workers, they would have more common sort of areas, uh, like uh, um, a, a common tank, shall we say, yeah, uh, which, which would be something that they would need to, to draw water from. It wasn't um, individual houses that had it. So obviously, in the dry season, 
the water would become a bit like sludgy and muddy and things like that are not so good, right? Not and 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 briny in in a way because this island uh, early on this and these islands around the Klang would have had a lot of mangrove, which protected um, the islands from from and protected the land. And you know, mangroves act as a good coastal uh, break, yeah. Or sea and 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 they protect um, the inner the inner land um, from encroachment, you know, by high tides and things like that. So <clears throat> you have a situation where the bosses would have water. The workers may not have as much water. They might have to go and you know use more sort of sludgy, muddy water. And and then of course you would have to filter your water before it became drinkable and potable and you know stuff like that, right? So when I think about Carrier Island, I always think about today, how in the last 10, 15 years, you know, the government of Malaysia, you know, has been promoting this idea of we must be sustainable, we must be green, we must be climate friendly, let's harvest our rainwater, right? And Carrier Island was doing it, you know, has been doing it for 100 years, right? But in the 1980s, when pipe water came in, you kind of like forgot this traditional harvesting and this source of uh, clean uh, water, um, <clears throat> meaning from the sky, lah, right? It's not something that nowadays we would drink. It's not potable for drinking purposes without filtering. But, you know, and even then they would have had to filter their water, obviously. But nevertheless, uh, it's a source of water that can be used for cleaning, can be used for your garden, can be used for watering can be used for all sorts of things, right? As long as you're not drinking it, um, in, consuming it in that, in that way. So that's kind of like a little bit of, of, you know, me, I will talk about not so much architecture, but talk about, you know, these, these technologies that we think of as modern, but actually they're really quite practical and traditional because even in an old shop house, uh, you had an air well and in the air well you would have, I mean, you came from Malacca, right? You know, you will harvest rainwater, right? You know what I mean? You will have your big, you could have a well, you would have big receptacles. That rainwater would be your tempayana, basically, that you would harvest your rainwater and use that, you know, to clean, to do whatever, you know, in the kitchen, you know. Um, <clears throat> uh, wash your feet, you know, that that sort of thing that, that was... So this kind of technology, I think, is something that we, that I remember always about Cary Island. And when I think of Cary Island, I don't think of Mount Mary. I think of rainwater harvesting, which is a bit weird, I know, but there you are. That was our resident heritage conservation expert, Elizabeth Cardosa, talking about Cary Island. We're going for a short break. Stay tuned. I'm Hanif Baharudin, and you're listening to I Love KL on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, listening to I Love KL, bringing you closer to the people and places of our capital city. I'm Hanif Baharudin. Elizabeth Cardosa, our resident heritage conservation expert, joins us on the show this month to talk about Kerry Island, a small but significant place located in Klang. She has shared the history of the island and her fascination with how the island, that's mostly known for its plantations and the Mahameri community, adopted a rainwater harvesting system very early on in its history. Let's continue that conversation. 
um, yeah, so I guess we have to talk about um, the Mamari community there as well because I think they're, like you said, mostly well, the Pulakari is mostly well known for the community there. But before that, I'm quite curious to know as to how the place sort of like evolved from being a quote unquote an island that's um, more well known for its plantation to becoming, I guess, a bit more these days, um, yeah, it's a bit more marketed to be more of a tourist destination i suppose yeah. one way or another yeah i suppose well you know plantations are plantations are plantations and they're not you know they're not places that you the general generally speaking that you visit right although i think Sime Darby have done uh, things they have a visitor center they have a little training center there you know which they do programs i think not just for their staff but people can rent it as well um, in one of that, they have the North Estate, the West Estate, and the East Estate. You know, so these are sort of um, the plantations uh, within the island. So, and they own, Time Dabi, I think, owns a good part of land. I think the majority of the land on that island belong to um, and are converted for use as plantation. Yeah, so like I said, you know, a lot of the mangrove has gone because it's been, you know, used, uh, I mean, because the land use has changed, yeah. And um, although Saim Dabi, I think a few years ago as well, started the mangrove replanting uh, program, because after tsunamis and after this climate change issues that arise, I think they're trying to do the right thing, lah, right? And give back, I think, to the land what they might have removed from it earlier, Okay. But yeah, so it's it's plantation. You know, it, it's very successful as a plantation. I think it's got two mills on the estate. Um, it's got, you know, housing for its staff. Um, and therefore, along with the housing, it has religious institutions and schools, uh, primary though, for the children of the their, their workers, religious institutions that represent all the different um, religious uh, groups. So, you know, you have Hindu temples and shrines, you have Chinese temple, you have church, you have mosque. Um, I think the church is the one that is not so used, but then, you you know, you now have a much larger mosque. And they are, you know, located around the plantation. The plantation itself had um, the first the carry and then Golden Hope and you know eventually I think Harrison's and Crossfield Golden Hope and then now Siam Dabi. Um, the plantations had a post office, they had its own hospital, um, they had it, so these are public facilities, meaning for for everybody to use, yeah. So got no um uh, we're not sending SMSs in those days, right? So you have to post things, right, and receive things. Um, so the post office, post and telegram office, very important. Um, there was a clubhouse for recreation. And that clubhouse had, a, the original uh, clubhouse was also a golf club. Um, they had a golf course, uh, which was a nine-hole golf course. And then it was expanded later into an 18-hole golf course. But, you know, the golf club was, was built, I mean, the clubhouse was built in around 1926, thereabouts if I remember my history correctly. And, um, you know, it, it, it had all the facilities. There's a pool. Uh, there are, you know, um, there is a ball, no, no, not a ballroom, like a, little, like a little, you know, room that you could have your 
your events in, you know, like like you could celebrate, you know, things in. Um, and then you have the gardens around that and you water your gardens and your golf course using the water that you have harvested that uh, your building uh, sits on. So it's pumped out. And even to today, the watering of, um, you know, the, the golf course is, is um, and of the garden around uh, is, is, you know, using um, the water that has been um, harvested, the rainwater that has been harvested and is sitting um, in the tank below the, the clubhouse. And then there's a beautiful, um, if you ever go there, a beautiful lotus pond. Um, and when, you know, the obviously when the lotus pads and the lotus flowers are there, it, it's really a lovely scenic sight. And these buildings, um, if you look at photos of these traditional what plantation houses and plantation buildings at Cary Island, um, a lot of them would be um, exposed. There, there's quite a lot of exposed red brick. Right. So so a lot of them are fair face. They won't necessarily all be plastered up. You know, there are some which have more plaster on the surface and the interiors will be plastered. But so smooth surface, lah, you know, for your walls, your walls. But um, on the whole, it has a very distinctive um, architectural character. And you see that in the post office. You see that in the hospital. The hospital had its own. A mortuary, it had its own uh, maternity ward, you know, it had its own dispensary, uh, it had its own wards for, for, you know, general, because it was an island that had to be self-sustaining. Um, you know, you, you couldn't, if you're sick, you can't, you know, just get in your car, whatever it is, or the ambulance can't come and pick you up because, you know, you were not connected by road then. So all of these things were parts of I think the, the the way in which the plantation life you know uh, was represented so because it wasn't just housing it was how you rec your recreation you have your your kadai you know <laughs> where you can go in your kadai runcit lah where you can go and buy your supplies your general training store you know where you can go and get your your police station you know so so these were all it was a community servicing the plantation and its many inhabitants. The, the different populations, the different classes and the different types of, 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 of general workers yeah, um, at, at the plantation. So that was that. And then, as you said, you know, um, you look at the Mahmeri community, which is quite separate. And I think that now more people will know about that because of the carvings, the Mahmeri carvings, and also because of the, um, that there's quite a lot if you read and you, you, you know, on the internet and you see, you know, an event. They are generally, I think the Mahmeri are, are, are fishing, you know, folk. One of their mainstay is fishing. But in the 1950s, somebody um, came along and, and um, said, how about doing some carving? The jahat in uh, Tamalo in, in, in Pahang also were given these tools and they started creating these uh, moyang, these masks and these, more, more than masks, they, these sculptures that were part of their interpretation, I think, 
in physical form out of wood carving um these um i suppose that 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 their spirit um you know representing um their their spirit beliefs their spiritual beliefs and um so the the characters and the 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 spirits um that they believed in um that protected them or that were part of their belief system their worldview were then represented through these sculptures and people became quite fascinated by this kind of art and in the 1950s and 60s certain people like i don't do you know who's do you know who who's an enas was he he very famous portrait artist yeah in malaysia and he he was buying some of you know a, a lot he, he purchased and he showed put on display at the national gallery or at the art gallery rather at the um did, did this type of work because it was it really attracted um people's attention naive but very skilled carving using very simple tools a kapa an axe to cut your tree you know to hew something which is you know large and and small tools like a chisel a pisau you know that that kind of thing just very basic carving tools through to today so they started with a few carvers people who had the smangat uh, to carve and then um, because they were already making masks uh, for their own rituals so this was just in a sense an extension of that Um, so the Mamari now are known for their patong, uh, their sculptures, yeah, and they're also known um, because they they take palm leaf, nipa leaf, and they weave them into these very elaborate, extremely beautifully elaborate. They make animals. They can make you know all sorts of decorations, which are used uh, daily. I mean, they make headdresses. They make all sorts of things with them. and that's just part of like we think about when we think about weaving we think about weaving a ketupat you know but these are extremely elaborate decorative items that they use in ritual that they use as part of their ceremonies that they wear you know as a headdress and um so you have that's what today people will go um to the island I, today i don't know i sorry i can't say today because covid kind of stopped a lot of things right i mean having i they um i think javatan orang asli i think it was them um with the orang asli community with the mamari community um set up a like a cultural center so visitors could go there and get some exposure to mamari culture and it was run by the community themselves you know, i won't go into details there but it used to be available and open to the public i have no idea whether it's still open i would hope that uh they would be able to reopen it now that um the borders have opened again yeah and, and people will be able to visit lah but as a community this was part of their life and so in a sense it was these parts that could be shared within taken and showcased in this cultural village visitors came and they saw you know their ritual performances and all of that and then it kind of got 
you know, the word of mouth went out and said, oh, you know, every, you know, April or thereabouts, there will be, you know, a, a festival because that will be, they're going out to see that kind of thing. So it has to do with, with a, a festival to do with the sea, right? Because they're fishing people. Um, and you want to make sure that you appease and you, the spirits of the sea, but you also appease culturally, you know, that's part of your, your whole, your cultural background and how you need to manifest your own traditions. I won't talk about that because I am not a, a Nora Asli expert at, by any means, but that's the thing that you will see a lot. You will see little clips, you will see images, um, which is there on display for um, a more general public maybe, but actually the basis of it, and that's the part that I you know, hope will continue, is because it is deeply embedded in their own worldview, in their own psyche, in their own community tradition and, and, and lifestyle. And, it, you know, with part of their whole cultural upbringing um, is this attachment, you know, to the land, to the sea, um, to nature. And these rituals and these performances are not for, it's good that other people can go in and enjoy them. But actually, they belong, you know, to to the Mahmeri. So they're not there. They're not there as a show piece, lah. They really have some direct connection to the culture of the people. So yeah, so that's that. And then now you have the SKVE, which flies across literally um, because it's it's an elevated road, uh, flies across the island. Um, and lands in one of the other Klang Islands, and Pulau Indah, I think it's called, uh, which you know has got um, more commercial housing, um, port, not port, but that logistics kind of facilities and things like that there. And um, I suppose I should mention that when they made the bridge, yeah, that cut across the island, you know, that linked the mainland and the island, you go through a little town called Teluk Panglima Garang. And I love the name, Panglima Garang. Who on earth was Panglima Garang? You know, um, and there are, you know, all sorts of stories about who was Panglima Garang. Like there was a Garang, there was somebody who was Garang there, uh, you know, uh, who was the, the Ketua Kampung, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, who was then the Panglima, right, uh, of, of that area, um, you know, and, and it talks about, um, but nobody really knows, I don't think, I, unless some, you know, anthropologist has done, um, or sociologist has done some research, which I haven't read, um, you know, as to the origins of the name, but I just think it's just a great title. It's a great name, very evocative. And people go there, we were talking earlier about um, offline, about food, right? Uh, people go to that area just before the bridge. There are a couple, there used to be, I don't know whether they're still there, a couple of seafood restaurants um, that people would go to. And depending on who you talk to, they would say, yeah, I go to the one on the left. Or, oh, I like to go to the one on the right. You know, that kind of thing. Um, so people have their favorites, you know, um, to go and eat seafood near Klang. Isn't that what we do as Malaysians? You know, go and look for places that we can eat. Yeah, um, so 
based based on what you've shared with us today, it mm. feels like Kerry Island is is it's a good destination to, to visit, I suppose. You know, if you think about it, right? Because it has both that cultural element, I think, which uh, some people love. I think you and me, perhaps, you know, we we are a bit more interested in yeah. that. But there's also that that I guess tourist spots, I suppose, for people who want to I guess sightsee or like you said you know get good food, seafood yeah I don't yeah I don't know how well developed in a sense that they don't have many tourist spots so there's a little a beach that's called Tanjung Ru okay so you imagine like Tanjung Ru like if you think about Langkawi Tanjung Ru and then you have a lot of Ru right or you think about you know I don't remember I haven't been there in a long time but I don't remember uh, that being you know, a beach filled with rue. You know what I mean? Because you're, you're literally, that's the Straits of Malacca. So imagine you're on the Straits of Malacca on a narrow part between, uh, you know, Selangor and Selangor on, on one side on the peninsula and Sumatra on the other side. Um, and that is a major shipping route, right? So the water is probably not as, crystal clear as you might get on the East Coast or, you know, in, in less in less heavily a trafficked area, yeah, or, or, or of ocean, um, because this is the Straits and it is an extremely busy shipping route. So, yeah, so part of part of um, this Tajung Ru, I think, faces uh, the Straits of Malacca um, or is, you know, is, is, is part of the Straits of Malacca and then there is some mangrove. And I think there is a resort around. Um, again, I don't know whether they're functioning anymore. I think in the last two years, there have been so many changes um, that it's difficult to say what is around. But there used to be a resort and the resort on the island, you know, provided you can do your cultural tours, you can do your, you know, activities and things like that, that they would organize. Or if you're just coming from KL, you could organize, you know, and you could go to the, Orang Aski village, um, pay uh, an entrance, you know, uh, charge and, you know, um, talk to people and visit their place, uh, visit and learn something about their culture. But there aren't that many, I think, tourism products, if you want to put it that way, which in a way is really nice because it means that you can go and you can discover things on your own. Yeah, I think I think that's that's my point to a certain extent. Like I feel like like you know, um, yeah, it might not have that typical touristy product that you you mentioned, but at least it feels more quote unquote authentic in that sense. You know, you know what I mean. So, it's definitely not going to be a place that's going to be flocked by a lot of people. But I think for people out there who are looking for something a bit less crowded, especially you know in this current climate that we're living in, <laughs> maybe this can be a good alternative. You know, good yeah, option for yeah, people to consider, yeah. right? And then you can get your food as well, you know, yeah, on correct. your way to and from. Um, yes, yes, I think so. You know, I mean, I think that Carrie Island, for me, I don't know whether you'd be able to access um, the plantation houses, for example. But I do know that because, you know, Saim Dhabi have had a visitor center, you know, had, a, you know, had interpretation, they would organize, you could book um, things. I'm sure if you look online, you'll be able to find, you know, Things like if you were in a group, educational uh, tours of um, their, uh, you know, their mill and to just, you know, have a look around, um, learn something about more, something more about palm oil, which is an, uh, such an important commodity um, to the country. The growing of it, the harvesting of it, the uh, processing of it, you know. Um, 
these are the kinds of things that are different. Um, they're not your usual, excuse the pun, run of the mill, you know, um, Disney-fied, uh, Disneyland kind of, um, you know, theme park kind of thing. Lah. The, these, this is, it's a working island, you know? And even the Mamari, I mean, it's a living community. It, they're not there. It's not a show piece. These are living, you're, you're talking about a living community of people. They're not that many. I think, you know, I remember reading some statistics that said something like, you know, there may be 200,000 or thereabouts Orang Asli in, in Peninsula out of whom like the orang, um, the Mahmeria, like 4,000 or something. I, I remember thinking, oh, that's a really small percentage. Yeah, that there are not that many Mahmeri. So imagine if you have five or six villages, uh, there are not that many of that community. How even more precious it is and how even more important it is uh, culturally um, that we ensure or that we try to not exploit, but, you know, to make sure that that they, their choice and their lifestyle and their choice of lifestyle, they should be entitled to it. Um, so a few years ago, you know, there was some talk about trying to make, to turn Kerry Island or to, to expand the port. You know, now we have North Port and West Port, right? In Klang, Port Klang. Um, I think they were trying to do a port um, on for container shipping and things like that you know, on Kerry Island. And if that were to happen, where are the Orang Asli going to be? You know, where are the Mahmeri community going to be? They will be so removed because of the encroachment on their traditional lands, which has already happened, you know, over the, you know, with the plantations, with all of these things that have happened. Um, that that uh, I think we, we have to practice, you know, sustainable tourism but sustainable tourism means that we have to be very cognizant um, that we are visitors we and we have to respect the rights of the stewards and the custodians of that culture that area that you know that creativity whatever that economy that piece of land um, and I think that that for me is is something that you know when we visit I hope these are things that we have to, we, we should remember. You've been tuning in to I Love KL and this week our resident heritage conservation expert Elizabeth Cardosa joined us to share her knowledge and thoughts on Pulau Kerry. That's all we have for this episode of I Love KL. If you miss any part of the show, you can check out the podcast at bfm.my slash ilovekl, our app which you can find via Google Play and the App Store and also Spotify. Don't forget to also follow the station on Twitter at BFM Radio. My name is Sanif Baharudin and you have been tuning in to I Love KL, bringing you closer to the people and places of our capital city. Stay safe and join us again next week only on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.